Hey everybody, it's just me right now, Eric, coming to you from his apartment. So, uh, Lauren and I misjudged our schedule just a little bit, and we ended up being a week off of where we thought we'd be in episodes at this point in the year. Uh, so we recorded this one like three weeks ago. We thought it was going to be next week's episode. Turns out that it is today's. Um, we didn't have a chance to record an intro for it before uh, Lauren went on Christmas vacation. So here I am doing the intro by my lonesome. Also, there's like some references to the fact that it's the first podcast of ours in 2020. Those are a lie. You can just disregard those. Anyway, uh, while Lauren's not here, I feel like I should take the opportunity to say nice things because that's not fun when your co-host is in the room. Um, this is the last podcast we're doing in the 2010s. And, you know, a lot of people are thinking about their kind of decade and wrap-up lists at this point. Um, I just read this article on Vulture of, like, doing a taxonomy of all the TV shows that, you know, aired the majority of their episodes in the 2010s and how they fall in rankings and everything. Um, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you probably know, you can guess a lot of my favorite television uh, my favorite show of all time is Community that aired in the 2010s. Uh, my favorite episode of that is Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which if you guys haven't seen it, I think you'd really like it. That was from 2011. Um, I love Documentary Now and Comedy Bang Bang. Those are shows from the 2010s, as well as The Good Place, Lauren and I have talked about before. Um, those are all in my top TV shows of all time, and they're all from this decade, so that's great. I do have to say that I don't think any show... Besides the original, She-Ra has impacted my life as much as She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which is pretty wild to think about. But because like, it hit at the same time that Lauren and I were doing this podcast, it really has made a gigantic difference for me. And I don't want to speak for Lauren, but I feel like she would say the same. It's It's a pretty magical thing. Like... I, I've gotten to know a lot of uh, our listeners because of of this cartoon show, and it's really magical. I love you guys a lot, and and uh, you know, Lauren and I have talked about when we started this show, we barely knew each other, and now she's one of my best friends, and that's awesome. And uh, I mean, we've met all these amazing creative people, and the episode you're about to hear, in fact, is an interview with one of those people, and it's just it's really cool. So I'd like to go on record as as thanking um, everyone, whether you're involved in creating She-Ra or whether you enjoy listening to us, or even if for some reason you don't enjoy listening to us and you, you put us on to hate listen, um, thank you. She-Ra is, is really special, and I, I, it's weird that uh, a cartoon has like had a measurable impact on my life, but here we are. And so, anyway, here's our last podcast of the 2010s. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another week of She-Ra Progressive of Power. Once again, I am Eric. And I'm Lauren. And this is the first episode you're hearing in 2020, but we're recording it about a month prior. So 
if we say something that sounds like weird and not timely, you know, I, I don't I don't know what to tell you. Just it is what it is, guys. We're we're uh, we're time travelers, right? Oh yeah, I was gonna do the political update, but I guess that would be a bad idea. Yeah, no. I'll save that for another recording. <laughs> yeah, session. that wouldn't make any sense right now. So we have no idea what's going on in the world. Hopefully, <laughs> there is still a world. Happy New Year! Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we've got a really cool guest on the line for our first episode of 2020. Uh, this is uh, a friend of ours who hung out when we went to L.A. and got to enjoy the fantastic, right, Shane, fantastic cafeteria at DreamWorks. <laughs> Best meal in L.A. How many times are we going to say this well, on this Shane, show? Shane is the one who gives me the most grief about it, so I feel like I have to bring it up now because that's makes, my style. It just makes me so sad because, like, as a native Angelino, we're just known for our food and so many different cultures have brought their best cuisines here. And not that our cafeteria is bad, but truly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an uncultured swine. I get it. Everybody, please welcome to the show writer and script supervisor for She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, Shane Lynch. Yay! That's the sound of everyone clapping. Yeah, and maybe a ghost. I sounded very ghostly <laughs> that time. So uh, this is Shane's first podcast. Is that correct? It is. Hence why I keep stumbling and speaking over you. My apologies. You are allowed to speak over us. I encourage it because as I was telling Eric, I feel like I ran out of material two seasons ago. So anytime you want to just butt right in, it is all you. We're so happy that you're here. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I've listened to uh, pretty much every episode um, since you guys started covering our show. I've listened to a couple of the ones uh, when you did the classic series, uh, for particularly for the ones that were my favorite episodes from the classic series. Um, so I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Literally. What What are some of your favorite classic episodes? Because I know not everyone on your team was, like, super steeped in it always. Um, so the Huntara episode is by far my favorite episode. Uh, and also one of my favorite voice performances <laughs> <laughs> modulator they put on her to get that like kind of like this weird talking voice. <laughs> um, I also the episode with small one. Oh, I, I kind of Flutterina, for I forget the actual episode title, but that uh, small one is Flutterina, right? Is uh, maybe yes. Yes. Yeah, we said that uh, just a couple episodes ago when we were frantically wikiing the history of Flutterina. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, that one is actually one of my earliest cognitive memories. So I watched the original when I was a, a baby in the eighties, and uh, I remember like running sobbing into my mother's arms when uh, Small One died. In quotes. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, uh, barely soothed when she became Flutterina. <laughs> was very traumatizing to me. That is so funny because one of my first memories is of watching He-Man with my mom. And it was the episode where Tila falls into the crevice outside Castle Grayskull. And it's all like similarly horrifying. And it's really unclear how she'll ever get out. Uh, that's wild. What a strange yeah. <laughs> commonality. So how did you end up working on, on this new iteration of She-Ra? Yeah, so I have a kind of an interesting, weird and yet somehow very uh, Los Angeles way of getting onto uh, the show. I've always been a huge, huge animation fangirl, uh, read tons of manga growing up. That was actually one of the really nice things about growing up in Los Angeles is uh, we had access to uh, a lot more. Um, I always loved stories about, like, you know, girl warriors and I love Sailor Moon and all, all that and so I was always drawn to stories like that. Um, and just always like, I remember like going to Blockbuster and getting like 
VHSs of, you know, uh, uh, Heroic Legend of Arslan or just basically anything I saw in the anime section with drawings on it. Um, and so this is like a really Hollywood story, but I was uh, attempting to be an actor for a couple of years and worked in a restaurant. And uh, one of the guys I worked at in the restaurant actually uh, was married to uh, one of our execs at DreamWorks. And I was always bugging him about animation and being like, you guys need to make more hand-drawn movies. And, like, um, and he was like, you know, why don't you work? in animation do you really love it you go to you know conventions and stuff you can this could be a career for you um and he brought up you know where we have this show in development it's she-ra and i was like oh my god i loved she-ra growing up i had i had a swift wind toy um and you know he basically said you know i can't promise you anything but i think i can have you interview and so i had writing samples prepared um, and I knew Noelle, I knew that she was involved and that scared me because I worshipped her from, uh, her, uh, comics and writing, uh, online. Uh, but I guess the interview went well somehow and, uh, I ended up being the, uh, script coordinator on the show. So for our listeners at home, we always tend to ask a little bit about just show business and what each of the titles means. So what is a script coordinator? Yeah, it's a really cool, um, I worked in live action and it doesn't quite have the same equivalent in animation. Um, it's a really cool, frankly, entry level position into the animation field. If you are interested in the writing side of things and, um, uh, the sort of day to day, uh, what takes a script from breaking the episode and she'll brainstorms to bullet pointing it out, to putting it to outline and then, uh, the drafts all the way through. Um, and then if you're a writer, it kind of ends there as a script coordinator, you have additional production duties that I love. Um, you get to go to the records. You're the person who sits next to your showrunner. Um, and as the actors record, you're the one who's taking circling, they're called circle takes. Um, which selections they like of line reads. Um, so you're really there for every single stage of, um, of the dialogue of the show. And then there's a whole post-production side uh, where you're creating the scripts that will be delivered to Netflix, um, the final uh, versions that will be sent on for awards considerations, basically anything involving the, the written word down on the page uh, you you're involved in. And I also sat in on animatic reviews and, you're, it's not just the writer's room. You're really involved in all stages of production. So it's a, it was a great way for me to learn about the animation industry. Well, and that's a very in-depth experience, given that you had told us your original goal was acting. What a cool transitional opportunity. Yeah, it was r really cool. I mean, like even what drew me to acting was the sort of, I don't know who I am, so maybe I can find other people to be. Uh, the thing I've loved about working in animation is you're still being creative and it's got, and it's still, you know, Hollywood, it's still the entertainment industry and media and all that, but it's got about a quarter of the ego. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> others, I would say like, it's really, everyone here is a big nerd, a big sweetie. Everyone's really passionate. You're not making as much money as people make in live action. Um, so it's really passion that draws people to uh, this side of things. So I really felt like I found my tribe, like I found my people working in animation. 
That sounds like exactly the job that I wanted when I was in high school. I'm so jealous of you, <laughs> even though like I'm not unhappy, but hearing about what you do, it's like, good Lord, that's so cool. It did take but- me a second on IMDb to like be sure <laughs> I was looking at the right Shane Lynch because of your previous uh, very interesting career. So first and foremost, I see the one episode of Twin Peaks. Is the last name Lynch a coincidence there? So this is like my great curse is it is a hundred percent a coincidence. Like it's a very popular Irish last name, but because I happen to book that role, like I know that everyone's going to think it's nepotism. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if it were nepotism, you would have gotten like a main part. You know, the fact that it's not made me made me assume it was a coincidence. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm like the uh, the daughter he doesn't love, so he like throws me. <laughs> <in my face. laughs> no, I think you should just tell people that though until he catches you, because when he finally sends you that cease and desist, now you know him. <laughs> so I have to do a real Chris Farley show moment and ask. Uh, so you were on the uh, very Murray Christmas special. Did you meet? Yeah, so that actually, that is nepotism. So my dad wrote the script on that. Um, <laughs> oh. Literally thrown in there as the coat check girl. We I don't have found any the nepotism. We've broken the story. I was going to ask if you got to meet Jenny Lewis, who I absolutely adore. Wait, you're not asking about Bill Murray? No, Jenny Lewis. Okay. Bill Murray's well, fine. I can sort of answer both. Both Jenny Lewis and Bill Murray are close uh, family friends of ours. My parents are way cooler and a bigger deal in the industry than I am. So I've grown up with some really crazy people. Um, That's wild. They're both off. (laughs) One time I, uh, when I was doing my storytelling podcast, I asked um, this woman, Bethany, who performs as a a springtime carnivore, if she wanted to do the show, because we had talked a little bit and she was like, oh, I can. I'm playing keyboard for my friend Jenny at the show, Jenny Lewis. And until now, that was the coolest name drop of Jenny Lewis I'd heard. Uh, So you you win. Nice, Nice work. She uh, is amazing. She's one of my favorite live shows, too. I've seen her a bunch of times, and she's really wonderful. And I love her uh, stage looks, all her, like, bejeweled suits and stuff. Absolutely. So for me, that's a means of transitioning to another question, which is, and Lauren's going to hate this, but we have to talk about it. Shane, you and I <laughs> share a particular musical love. The boss. I'm burying my face in my hands <laughs> and taking a bathroom break. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. The face <laughs> that... Face and hands is true. It's true. I've seen him live. Like this is actually not even that much for a Springsteen fan, but I think I've seen him live like five times. What uh, What was the last tour you caught him on? I'm trying to think, the one he did like two, three years ago. Oh, the uh, like River Anniversary. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh no, it's at the Forum. He does. Uh, I think. I think that was was at the Forum. We were like really close to the stage. It was awesome. We were off to the side, but we got close tickets because my dad was like, you know, let's do this if we're going to do this. <laughs> and I, I just sobbed the entire time. Yeah, same. I, I was not close at all, but my my friends and I were like nosebleeds. And when uh, the lights came up in the stadium he, and he started playing Thunder Road, it was just like pure magic. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> it's I'm not sure I've ever seen you this just consistently envious, Eric. <laughs> yeah, just... maybe I just want Shane's life, actually. <laughs> hmm. It's not all Bill Murray and Bruce Springsteen. There's also a lot of just me being the awkward self that I am. <laughs> well, I mean, that's probably a lateral move for me, to be honest. So. You've been me for a while. I'll be you. 
So today we're talking about the episode Boys Night Out, which is an episode that uh, Shane, you wrote. I guess my opening question for you is, it kind of feels like maybe this season initially was divided into two halves. Uh, Mer Mysteries is the preceding episode. We haven't talked about it yet, but I feel like that was kind of a mid-season finale, and then this is kind of the start of the second half of the season. Did that play into your creation of this at all? Uh, a little bit. Um, it was, I think, if my memory serves me, it was still kind of up in the air about how the actual seasons were going to get broken up. So we try to like every whatever the divide is, six or seven episodes, do a little bit of a reset. But it wasn't like a full, you know, like uh, the coronation is, you know, an actual like, you know, there's a little bit of a time skip. Um, there's more of a, you know, what's the status quo? This one, we have a little bit of that. Um, but I'm honestly a little bit fuzzy on my memory of if we knew that was happening at that point, writing it or not. Yeah, I mean it, it definitely just seems like uh the stakes are are maybe elevated here. Like there's uh you know Hordex just got his fancy new gun and the conquest of Etheria has turned pretty dire and it definitely seems like I could see a break there, but it also flows really well from, you know, the preceding part of the season. Uh I I think tonally this episode is really interesting though because it does start like so bleak like the most maybe in-person carnage we've seen in this show. But it also is such a bright episode in some ways. Uh, was that, I imagine that was pretty fun for you? Yes. Uh, this episode, I actually, uh, when we were brainstorming out the season, we had a vague idea of what this episode was going to be. This is one where I really like shot my hand up and was like, me, 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 please. Um, because that is my like favorite type of storytelling. Like the, just the first example that's in my head right now is the movie In Bruges, which is very funny and very devastating. Um, I, I love things that are a little bit of both. Um, and there is something uh, about this episode. There's so much like uh, of the, the masculine characters sort of take the, the stage on this one, uh, whether it's Hordak really having his like fun in the sun, which is giant laser gun moments to uh, Bo's emotional labor that uh, I really wanted to uh, you know, get into and explore. It seemed like a fun challenge for me. Was it always meant to be a musical episode from the jump? We knew we wanted to do a musical episode. Um, it, what, what that meant in terms of, because musical episodes do take longer in production. You have to have the music written out first. Uh, so the board artists uh, can, can board to the actual uh, compositions. Um, so it, it moves things around in the production calendar and stuff like that. Um, I'm actually working on another DreamWorks show right now that has music in every episode. And it's been interesting to see like how that affects your schedule. Um, but on ours, it was really just, we've had a couple of other songs uh, for Seahawk, but the, this was, uh, we wanted it to be as musical as possible without seeming like totally out of place in the narrative of uh, the story we were telling. Now, did you get to write the songs? Yeah, so this is actually really cool. Um, I I love rhyming poetry. Like, it's just something that I'm super into. Um, and so when I was writing this, the songs, even that, like, you know, they didn't change wildly from first draft. I tried to make sure that, that the uh, rhyme fell on a, in a steady rhythm, on a, on a beat. Um, and our composer, uh, Alex Garingas, he did this amazing thing where he 
didn't really change my lyrics at all. He used the, uh, the, the I don't know the right music terms, but I guess like the meter that I had set and set it to music. It was really, really cool. So like, it's really like my words are the songs. That's really badass. Now, when, when you were writing this, did you know the cast already? Because you're taking advantage here of a Broadway singer and a star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, that uh, that definitely uh, influenced A, the lyrics, B, what type of music I requested. You know, like Jordan Fisher is, you know, of Hamilton and, you know, he sang a Moana soundtrack. He's really amazing. I Seeing him, I'm just like, oh, this is like, this is an, a movie star. So getting to use him and be like, you know, it's really fun making this like gorgeous young man be a silly pirate singing a pub shanty. <laughs> I saw uh, on Vela Lavelle's Twitter that she was saying she's always sort of considered herself not a singer, but an actor that can carry a tune. Whereas the voice of Seahawk is definitely more singer forward, I think, in his resume. And hearing those two types together, I thought was a very cool experience, but I thought would be maybe difficult to write for. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, Vela, I love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And the character of Mermista, I always, <laughs> Noel would always kind of like joke that like, that would be like my uh, archetype in, in the Princesses of Power. So that character is really, really special to me. Um and I wanted to give her a really cool punk rock kind of nautical uh, fight song. Uh, and to get to write for Vela was just like, I never like even expressed in the recording booth like how psyched I was because I just kind of couldn't believe it was happening. She's so cool. So her her role in this episode in general is just so, it brings me so much joy. Like she goes through this kind of uh, chrysalis in, in a tub eating ice cream where she refuses to emerge and, and kind of deal with what's going on around her. And then she has this wonderful line, the boys are in trouble, a seagull told me, which really springs her into action. Uh, I absolutely love her in this episode. So I can see where your love of the character is, is coming in because she was so fun here. Yeah, that particular line, I remember like that being in like prior drafts and like sort of thinking that like when Noelle did her voice pass that it would change, but there's something she just loves about like that line <laughs> and how absurd it is that it uh, it's dated. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that Mermista has transformed into her fin to be in just in the tub. Like she's not swimming; she's just hanging out in the bathtub. And it was very like that movie splash <laughs> just yeah. with the, with the mermaid on land, just hanging out in the bathroom. I love that visual. It was so cute. Just a little self care moment. You have to eat ice cream in a bathtub. I also, uh, you know, if you've listened to this show and you have, you know, my opinion of Seahawk is very mixed <laughs> and I really love the dialogue that he shares with Mermista in this episode when he is saying, that's my girl, to both her, like, massive comeback of ambition, but just, like, also her love of food. I just appreciated that moment that he is supportive of the big parts of her and the small parts of her. So in this episode, anyway, I totally ship it, and I appreciate you uh, writing them in a way that wins my favor, because Seahawk is, my relationship with Seahawk is tumultuous. <laughs> Listen, I understand you're not the only one, but um, <laughs> for me, I mean, I love that moment. I think Josie might have even honed that moment 
having them fight together and really be a, a team together, um, their actual duet together. Like I really kind of wanted through Mermist um, and Seahawk to have, you know, boy, girl solidarity that they're, they're really a team. Um, and they are good for each other and what they have is weird, but it works for them. And, um, yeah, that, you know, he's just so into her. Like you cannot deny the fact that he's a very supportive guy to her. Um, which I, I think is great. I'd like to see more of that. Before we get too far off of the music, just because you said duet, I want to throw in for our listeners the fact that the music for She-Ra and the Princesses of Power got nominated for an Annie Award for uh, Best Music. And even when this episode airs, I don't think the awards will have happened yet. So congratulations. Good luck to the entire show. That's so stellar. Um, we have gotten some audience requests to get some people on the show involved in the music. So hopefully we can speak to someone soon about that. That would be so great. The music is a huge part of your show. Sun is really awesome. She actually came to one of our recording sessions and I was really excited to talk to her because the music I actually listen to the most as a writer is movie soundtracks. So I really, really love what she does. Um, I loved in particular what she's done for our show. Um, if you go on YouTube, people are already trying to like rip the soundtrack. People really want the soundtrack. So I'm hoping that uh, DreamWorks releases it um, as its own album because the stuff she's done, I mean, the episode she was nominated for, Beast Island, she does such incredible electronic, weird, degraded, cool things in addition to the beautiful, sweeping, heroic themes that uh, are throughout the show. She's really like the real deal, and I'm very impressed by her. Mephista, you're back in the game! Never felt better. Rescuing people is my jam. I knew it! Never doubted my brilliant plan for a moment. Oh, how fun! No shanties! Hit it! I thought you said no shanties. This isn't a shanty. It's like a rock remix, so it's cool. So let's let's stay on the Seahawk train for a little bit because as, as you mentioned before, this really is like kind of the most masculine forward episode of the whole show. Um, did you find was there like a challenge to writing that or an appeal or, or both? Like, did you approach this episode maybe differently than than you would have uh, other episodes? Um, a little bit. It's funny. Like I, for me, they're all. It's obviously a, a female focused show. It's a female majority female crew the the female gaze is all over what we do um but it, it's also i wanted to show these characters through that same uh that same voice you know like um opening on hordak destroying a village basically because he's trying to prove himself to entrapped <laughs> or um or uh yeah Bo, who has always been such a great friend uh, finally breaking down at the end about, you know, I'm doing all this emotional labor and I'm not really getting any acknowledgement. I'm hoping that like if by showing male characters expressing emotions like that, then maybe that can have a nice uh, influence. Yeah, I, I think like my heart absolutely broke seeing Bo really have his emotional moment at the end. I thought that was such a, a lovely thing, uh, especially because the episode does kind of the inciting incident that Seahawk brings is this like bro time bravado. And then it turns into very heartfelt moments from, 
you know, from all of our dude characters. I really like that. It's not going to be so much a hot take once this actually airs, knowing how ahead of the curve we are. But this episode actually made me, um, well, I thought of this episode when I saw Frozen 2 this past weekend, because in Frozen 2, the character of Kristoff, there's a, there's a way of watching him in Frozen 2 that you're like, he didn't do anything. They just put him off to the side and let him wander in the woods, and he was super boring. They sidelined that character. But actually, that character goes on an emotional arc in Frozen 2, and he learns about healthy relationship dynamics and codependence and trust in relationships. And just the fact that we're in an era where, you know, a massive television cartoon and a massive Disney movie are both showing boys going through emotional growth and vulnerability. I want a time to be alive is really all I'm trying to say. I'm so glad. I will say that Kristoff's song in Frozen 2 is my favorite song in the entire movie. I that that's probably my favorite song too and I will completely admit that in a theater full of quiet surprisingly quiet children when that like 80s power ballad guitar riff hit I audibly said out loud in the theater what is happening (laughs) wait did you say power ballad now I'm in okay I'll take you to see Frozen 2 great can we go yeah that's wonderful One of my favorite themes in this episode is the um, fact that you can have a friendship with someone that maybe you value more than they do, or, you know, you can have a one-sided relationship. So we see Bo kind of wrongfully or not mourning that nobody even realized he was gone. But more movingly to me, we see poor Seahawk, like, beg his former friend, or at least friend in his mind, why can't you spare us? Like, if our friendship ever meant anything, why are you doing this? And that, like, scurvy and that whole crew basically say, what are you talking about? We're not friends. You have no value to us. This is ridiculous. And it was just, yeah. it just broke my heart because I think, uh, especially here in adulthood, we can all think of relationships we've been in where we were just feeling it way more than the other person was. And that hurts so bad. And that is such a complex and mature subject to explore with this episode. Yeah, I mean, those two moments you just brought up, um, the bow moment was actually a little bit inspired by this wasn't the same emotional situation uh, that he's going through, but uh, one of my best friends lost a parent around the time that I was writing this. And the feeling of having a friend hurting and not knowing what to do about it and feeling helpless. Um, and uh, that that sort of, you know, that sort of panic of, I've always been able to make this person smile. I've, everything's always been okay. And I can't, reach them right now was a little bit of some of the uh, emotions I was drawing on uh, for that part. And for the, um, the Seahawk and scurvy stuff, you know, there's only like so much we can show about the dynamics of war uh, in in our show, because um, obviously the target audience is children and we don't want to, you know, get fully into genocide, but um, not fully, 
<laughs> not fully, <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are, these scurvy and his crew are profiteers. You know, that's, that's the way that we can touch on, you know, there are people who can take advantage uh, of others in, in times of conflict and, uh, and to show a little bit of that, you know, in, in this context. Speaking of scurvy, I'd like to call out a couple fun throwbacks in this episode. So Admiral Scurvy is one. Now, and I don't know if this was intentional on, on your part, but there's kind of a meta joke in his appearance, IMO, because the original Admiral Scurvy uh, looked like Keith Richards, was like straight up designed to be Keith Richards, but on the horde. And so to include him in a musical episode is very, very fun. Yes, that was totally my play. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought he looked a little reminiscent of the original Seahawk design. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, like with a, you know, like a color palette swap, but mm. that more like hyper masculine build, it really took me back to the 80s characters yeah, that were all just buff. You're right, like stout legs and broad shoulders, absolutely. So uh, I will say there is a lot of throwback in this episode. Um and it is actually on purpose. So I'm a big Master of the Universe fan, and, you know, you give me an episode, I'm going to put as much Master of the Universe in it as possible. So Scurvy's there. Scurvy in the original show had a cat named Squall, hence his cute cat lady crew member. <gasps> oh, yeah. Which that's supposed to be Squall. Um, Leech appears as his other crew member. Um so, I mean, his actual design, if I recall correctly, I was just like, make him hot. Come on. I want a cool... <laughs> Wait, leech or scurvy? <laughs> I don't want to tell tales out of school, but now that we're talking about it, you kind of, like, strongly hinted to me through a pun when we were having lunch that leech would appear at some point in the future. And I don't remember what you said, but it was really smart and funny. And it made me think that we would see our green boy again. You talk to me about that ev like every time I saw you for weeks. Like, Leech is coming. <laughs> yeah, I was excited. And I didn't even hear that conversation. I was like talking to Greg or somebody at the time. And then later on, you were like, guess what I heard? <laughs> you were so pumped. But I didn't tell anybody because I'm a good boy when it comes to spoilies. But uh, yeah, this was really cool. And I, I, he, I feel like he kind of looked... A lot like the original action figure slash, like, comic art design, which was cool. He was a little more, like, lumbering and, like, spooky looking than the filmation version. Yeah, I'm not sure who actually designed him. Maybe Ray. Um, who They're also, like, a huge fan of Masters of the Universe. Um, but in general, design cues would come from the original show. Um, and, I mean, yeah, all of them really do have a classic uh, Motu design, which I think is a really cool aesthetic. Um they're fun to, they're fun to, all those, even the, um, the little sea elf incidentals in the beginning are some of my favorite incidental figures we have. There's like a little anglerfish one with a little light up <laughs> head doodad. There's a lady with a squid face beard. All, all of those designs, I love undersea stuff. So all of that was really, really cool for me to see. And that's interesting because those opening scenes kind of felt to me maybe like some of the closest to the filmation show in as much as, like, we're seeing the Horde really be, like, a military occupying force with Hordak on the front line. Uh, so that that's cool. It, in both, like, design and in narrative, this reminded me of, like, here's where we were in the 80s, you know? So that was sweet. Yeah. 
Rewatch. Octavia's in this one too, right? Yes, who I love. Oh, I, yeah. She's one of my favorite designs uh, from the original show as well. Um, and I, I love that she, her voice actors ended up sort of making her just like really put upon almost like a camp counselor as to wrangle all these kids. <laughs> <laughs> She's, uh, she's one of my favorite designs from both our show and the original show. Yeah, she's probably my favorite um, Horde design. And I just looked it up because I was curious. This is not the first time we've seen her on the new version. And Octavia was a, kind of a Seahawk rival in the 80s. They had a really cool sword fight. But Oct- original Octavia was only in two episodes. And so this one has already kind of caught up, which I think is rad. I know in my memory she had been in more, but yeah, I guess she hadn't. Her design is just so cool; it probably is imprinted in my head. Like awesome squid girl. It's really striking, and it's a sin that they never made an action figure out of her. Like that was something just the filmation people they thought didn't. was cool. That's the worst. No. I, I imagined when I saw her that she was made because of action figures. I mean, there is one now because of the Collectors Club, but yeah, not in the eighties. Seemed like the whole point. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I can't find her at PowerCon, so they do have one now. Isn't that crazy though? In the 80s, they didn't have Shadow Weaver as a toy. They didn't have uh, Scorpia. They didn't have, uh, who are we just talking about? They didn't have Octavia. Like all these amazing characters did not have toys. What what were you doing, Mattel? Sexism. By the end of the episode, we've got nice friend uh, reconciliation moments and we We've got sweet notes, definitely, as you were talking about with Seahawk and Remista. But there's a couple of really fractured relationships that this episode uh, leaves us with that I'd like to talk about before we go. So Adora and Glimmer have this big fight where Glimmer says things that she can't take back. Um, finally, all this, all these emotions inside of her lead her to blaming Adora for her mom's death, which that was really heavy. Um, and then Catra yeah. and Scorpia as well. Catra, it takes her two episodes and like tr- talking to Scorpia on the con, not realizing no one's listening to realize that Scorpia has bailed. Yeah, it's uh, Shira where you think you're having fun and then you get hit in the face with spills at the end. Is <laughs> this the of- one where Catra actually goes into Scorpia's like bunk at the end? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we get to see that Scorpia had two moms. Yep. And a cute little plush scorpion toy. That's true. Way to leave that behind. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the it's funny. The catch the of Scorpio scenes. Also, I wrote the episode, um, was it last season? The Price of Power episode. For some reason, Catra and Scorpio scenes are the easiest for me to write. Um, and they went through very few changes um, afterwards. But I always you know, knew that those moments really, we see for the first time that Catra's gotten everything she wants and it feels hollow. Um, and the person she would go to for her emotional labor is always Scorpio. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, when she gets the letter part at the end, again, like I, this, animation's made so long ago, so I'm trying to remember if this is exactly right. I think in the script that we did have originally have her read the letter and I think it was that animatic phase I like raised my hand and was like guys cut it just have her open it and then it played so well just having the, you know that little piece of paper drift to the ground and 
Yeah, because you don't really, as a viewer, need to know what it says specifically. You kind of already know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that scene uh, just as I was rewatching before our call, and it really does hit super hard just implying what the letter says. It's the show don't tell, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, real real heavy stuff happening here. I absolutely adore the line when Glimmer and Adora are really hard at it in the palace. Uh, Adora says to Glimmer, we can fix it. And Glimmer's like, why do you always say we can fix it? And Adora says, because it's the only thing we can do. Yeah. Damn. That's good. Oh, but Glimmer also says that since She-Ra showed up, everything's gotten worse. And I think that's very harsh because it's not wrong, but it's sort of a correlation versus causation thing. Like things have gotten worse in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. And just to put it all on one person is really cruel. Yeah. I mean, I am a big glimmer stan. Uh, I know that she can be a polarized <laughs> character. Sometimes some of the fan base, I've, I could see some tweets where I'm like, Oh, you don't, you don't like glimmer. That means you are the glimmer. <laughs> like, oh. Wow. Is it really wrong? She's not wrong. You know, as you'll, as things unfold in the rest of the season, nothing that she says is technically wrong. Um, and she has a very strong point of view. I mean, in the time since Adora's shown up, she is now an orphan. <laughs> you know, like, um, is it a fair assessment? No, but you know, she's a teenage girl who's having her world kind of crumble around her. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to her. Um, you know, her, her world worldview and mind don't always match up, but I, I can understand, you know, wanting to not be a pacifist, wanting to move forward and, and be proactive. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really relate to her perhaps more than I should. <laughs> this is going to be a weird poll, but I have a friend who right now is rewatching Breaking Bad. And she said mm-hmm. one of the major changes that she's experiencing since the last time she saw it was that she's been Team Skyler from the jump. And I remember the character of Skylar in Breaking Bad getting so much fan hate back in the day to the point where that poor actress was getting, like, an absurd amount of death threats. To be fair, one death threat is an absurd amount. (laughs) And the only reason seemed to be that she was, like, perceived as this buzzkill because she wouldn't just let Walter White do whatever he wanted, as if, like, the audience just thought Walter White as a murderous drug lord was cool and it, therefore, anyone who would argue with it was a problem. And I was always on, like, Team Skylar just as a, of course she's upset. Like, they have a special needs son who the father's treating like garbage. He's dying. He's dealing drugs. He's in a violent and murderous, like, crime ring. It's terrible. Of course she wants better for her family. What the hell? And some of the glimmer hate, I think, pushes that same button. Like, heaven forbid this poor girl be upset that her parents are gone and her kingdom keeps losing land and everyone she loves might die. And she maybe wants some control over that and doesn't just let Shira do whatever she wants. I, I, I think maybe it's just me being in my 30s, but I'm like, she's got reasonable wants and needs. <laughs> Lauren, you are speaking my language. <laughs> Even like I actually got into Breaking Bad very late. I was 
watched, I binged the entire series right before the final season aired um, because I wanted to be caught up to watch that one live. And maybe it's because I binged it all, but I, it shocked me when I found out that people hated Skyler. I was like, I know. I always wanted that show to go more Lady Macbeth with her just because those are always my favorite types of characters. (laughs) Now you're speaking my language. (laughs) Also another Shadow Weaver stand. Yes. But, yeah, I, I 100% agree that uh, it's interesting <laughs> what, when a female character asserts themselves. We talk a lot about how uh, even kind of in the show, Light Hope does it where Mara uses her power for good and then she becomes crazy. Oh, crazy Mara, you know, with her own agenda. What a weirdo. What a nut. Uh, how about that institutionalized sexism, guys? Pretty great, right? Tight. Tight, tight, tight. <laughs> Uh, Shane, we got to get out of the studio in like five minutes. So I want to thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. This was really cool. Um, I hope it's usable. <laughs> it's it super is. Yeah. I could talk to you for another hour. Yeah. And, um, you know, I hope we'll stay in touch. And it's been just such a pleasure to get to work on something really for years now and then see the effect it has on people and have people take it seriously and break it down and, you know, want to talk about it is really makes it all worth it. So thank you so much. It's, it's really, really cool. We We appreciate that. It was so kind of you to reach out to us on Twitter. And speaking of, I'm going to encourage our listeners to not look at your Twitter because sometimes you post up like that bath and body works lady, that rant, (laughs) and it ruined my day. (laughs) I just hate stuff like that. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to go hard for Shane's Twitter. I'm going to say you should follow Shane. Shane, if you want our listeners to make up their own mind, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Ms. Shane Lynch, M-S-S-H-A-N-E-L-Y-N-C-H. Same for Instagram. If you need visuals for some reason. And uh, yeah, tweet at me, send me things, send me drawings. I don't know. Yeah, getting fan art is really something special. Uh, Shane, before we go, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked. Gosh, I don't. I think it maybe was uh, Rebecca, and she had a very political, a very like politician-like answer, and I'm sure you will too. But I'm curious: Do you have any favorite ships, Shane? You've talked about characters you stand, but how about ships? Our listeners love this stuff. All right. Well, Light Hope and Mara is probably my number one. Yeah. But I see that my my other ones are canon, and therefore I'm not going to reveal them. Whoa. That's a tease for season five, if I've ever heard one. Assuming there is one, but I think it's a pretty safe assumption. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. We hope so, too. Listen to your heart. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.